I'm Leanne Spencer, expert in corporate well-being, author, and your host. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. We bring you a 10-minute episode every single week to give you everything you need to optimize your well-being. The show's brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We use technology and science-based solutions to create happy, healthy, and resilient teams. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Move the Guesswork podcast. It's Leanne Spencer here, and I hope you're well. Hope you're staying healthy. This week, we're doing something a little different. Apart from my usual 10-minute insight episodes, I had the great opportunity to interview an immunologist, a research associate, and a PhD student called Dr. Yasmin Mosseini. I'll put a link to her Instagram in the show notes if you want to check her out. But I had the opportunity to talk to her about myths around COVID, facts around COVID, lots of information about the vaccines. So I think you're going to really enjoy this one. It's going to be really beneficial and informative as well. At a time when the UK is moving out of lockdown restrictions um, reasonably quickly, I think there are concerns amongst some of us that are we going to be able to stay safe? And I hope that this podcast will answer a lot of those questions and concerns or give you more confidence. So sit back and enjoy. As always, share this with anyone you think needs to hear it. And uh, yeah, enjoy listening to Dr. Yasmin Mosseini. Dr. Yas, welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Tell us a bit about yourself and your background. Yes. So hi, everyone. I'm, I go by Dr. Yaz, but my name is Yasmin Moseni. Um, I've got a PhD specializing in the immune system, specifically on immunotherapy and autoimmune diseases and organ transplant rejection. And um, right now I work for a biotech company uh, developing cell therapy products through genetic engineering for autoimmune diseases and organ transplantation. So it's exactly what I've done for my PhD. And yeah, so what I've basically been doing is in light of the pandemic that we're all living through, uh, there's been a lot of misinformation that's been going around. And I think what's been highlighted is the lack of science communication. A lot of people who aren't necessarily experts in the field are trying to fend through the data and make sense of what's going on. So I've decided to step in and to try and dispel some myths and put people at ease by speaking about the science in more of a layman's terms. So that's what I've been trying to do. Amazing. And you've been doing quite a lot of that, haven't you? Yes, yes. It's been keeping me busy for sure, but I've been enjoying it. And I didn't actually realise the reason why it's been keeping me busy is because I didn't realise just how many questions people had. You know, it's easy when you're in the field to kind of just presume people know the difference between an antibody and a T cell, but you know, people don't. So. Yeah, I certainly don't. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm move hover around the edges of this topic. Yeah. Well, let's start there then. I mean, what are some of the the most pertinent facts, in your opinion, we should know about as it relates to COVID and possibly the vaccine as well, and you know, and how to to stay safe. I think the key thing for me is, I mean, I always try and stay sort of as integral to the science as possible. And I don't have an agenda in the sense of like it, I'm not going to ever tell someone that you should go and get the vaccine. That's I of all, you know, I always try and maintain that it's your decision and your choice. However, I think the key thing I want people to know is the misconception of well, I don't need the vaccine because I'm young, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I train, I've got good diet. So if I do catch COVID, I would be able to get over it myself. No. And I think that's important that people know that. Um, right now, COVID isn't, it's it's a tough one because there's data coming out right now that those suffering from long COVID are actually the sort of the 
uh, millennial generation, the 30 somethings as well, because they just don't know when to slow down. And they're the ones suffering from long COVID and sub subsequent neurological damage more so than the elderly population. So I guess the main thing I want people to try and understand is just because you think that you're fit and healthy, COVID doesn't discriminate. I know that's a, quite a doom and gloom way to start, but I think it's important to also set the precedent as well. Yeah, it gets everyone's attention, doesn't it? Young, yeah. young and old. Okay, yeah. uh, tell us a bit about COVID-19. What do we know about it? COVID-19, well, okay, yeah. So um, what we're trying to understand is this coronavirus strain. So um, we've got a lot of experience with coronaviruses in general. We've had the SARS, we've had the MERS viruses. And because of that, that's also why, like as a side topic, why the vaccines have come out so quickly is because already a lot of research has been done substantially in both MERS and SARS. And through having that genetic information available, we've been able to sort of tailor research very easily to SARS-CoV-2 is what we call COVID. So SARS-CoV-1 is what's been known as the SARS and SARS-CoV-2 is COVID. Um, but what's interesting about COVID is it's how the main thing that's boggled scientists is the fact that you can have an incubation period of up to two weeks and be asymptomatic. So the amount of people that you could obviously, as we all know now, you could come into contact with and infect has been quite shocking, really. So I think that's the main thing. Um, the other thing is that people need to be aware of, I think, about COVID is um, it does mutate, yes. And obviously the variants have been getting quite a lot of limelight um, in the news and stuff as to how much they've been mutating. It seems to always be like a hot topic as COVID's now mutated. But I think people need to realise it It does mutate because it's very genetically unstable, but it doesn't mutate as often as the flu virus. So that's something to also put people at ease. It has these... How COVID works is it's got these repair mechanisms as a virus. So if it senses that its structure, its genetic material has changed, the virus will try and go back and repair those mechanisms. Whereas, for example, the flu virus, it doesn't work like that. So I think that's the key thing that I would like to bring across as well, is that we don't need to worry. It's not on the same level as the way the flu or even HIV mutates. Okay. And what is its mechanism of action, as it were? How does COVID incubate within us and then what happens to it? Well, yeah, no. So it, it pretty much operates the same way as normal viruses do. So um, what happens is if you get exposed, there's a lot of sort of controversial data right now, sort of like people are not sure as to how it's transmits, if it's droplet-based or aerosol-based. There's constantly publications coming out show it could be either one or the other. It's not surface-based, so I think they've concluded that. So it's not a case of you'll catch it from the surface. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So it's it they're leaning more towards the sort of aerosol or droplet-based um, transmission, which is why the masks, they believe, have been helping. So when you say aerosol, if somebody sneezes and you follow in their trail, yeah, you may pick up the droplets exactly. that way. Yeah, exactly. As well as yeah. sort of the spittle that happens when we talk that may land in an eye or a cheek, which I know is a, a bit gross, but can happen. Hence the the need for masks. Exactly. Um, although there's obviously been a lot of controversial studies coming out. It's like, well, do the masks actually help? Well, yeah, if you've got the surgical masks, there's specific, you know, masks. Then yeah, if you have like a fabric piece of mask then maybe not necessarily but um, that's a whole other conversation but yeah. um, how, how COVID works is it basically it binds to something called ACE2 receptor now we've got this ACE2 receptor in our gut and also in our mucosal lining such as in our like sort of in our lungs area so that's what COVID 
binds to. So via the spike protein, the receptor binder domain, we call it, it binds to ACE2 and it just enters into our mucosal cells. And it will use it the that make it all sound so scary, I guess. Um, in it will see you know, it will seek, it will be able to do this and mostly evade at least the immune system in the incubation period. And it will use the cells machinery to generate more COVID particles, essentially. And then it will go off and continue to infect. But what happens is in so in that incubation time, it kind of goes a bit undetected. But luckily you have different um, arms of the immune system. You've got your innate immune system, which is like your first line response. So it's immediately when it detects an unhealthy cell. So when the cells get infected with COVID, they kind of send out like an SOS signal. Mm. Like it realizes, the cell will realize it's been infected and be like, something's not right, help me. And it'll send out an alarm. And that's when the innate immune system cells will come and try and suss out the situation, what's going on. And unfortunately at this point, the cell that's been infected can't be saved. So the immune system cells will kill in a safe manner, will kill the infected cell and extract what it was that made it sick and detect COVID. And from that, it will go and alert the adaptive immune system, like your T cells and your B cells. But they need about two weeks to build up the army. So while they're building up the army, um, your innate immune system, the first line, is going to try and clear the infection and sometimes you don't even need your adaptive immune response to really act by then you might have cleared it am i right in thinking with the immune system the innate is almost like the foot soldiers going out to fight to respond to the immediate threat and then the the adaptive immune system is almost the general in a bunker somewhere strategizing on how to make sure this doesn't happen again oh we can go even deeper than that (laughs) so the innate immune system are kind of like yeah the patrol i guess you could say the patrol guards they're kind of just circulating just to make sure everything is in order and it goes even deeper like you have different each cell this is why i was so fascinated by immunology when i was doing my undergraduate degree because every cell had a unique purpose and that was what made me so, I was like, how are all these little cells working together every single day just to keep me alive? Like it kind of made me reflect and be like, I should really be more grateful towards my body. And it's just one system that learned all the other systems in the body. But um, <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent there. So in the innate immune system, you've got, yeah, I guess like the patrol guards, they go and they sometimes they also check each cell and they also detect cancer cells as well, because when the cell becomes cancerous, it will downregulate some receptors. So when these patrol guards are going along checking, like almost taking the register, how's everyone doing? So one set of cells will do this and detect the receptors not there. It will realize it's cancer and then it will raise the alarm. So you've got those and then you've got these other sort of subset of patrol guards called antigen presenting cells. So, I mean, what they do is kind of in the name, antigen presenting. So what these guards do is they will capture the bad guy. So when they detect the antigen in the body or when the distressed cell has sent the SOS and the guards come see what's going on. So obviously some of the cells will kill and then these antigen presenting cells will find what it was, the culprit, which is COVID, grab, like, gobble it up, take its little pieces, little antigens, and go straight to your lymph nodes, which are like the barracks. And there it will alert the base. And these antigen-presenting cells literally present the antigen. They'll be like, this guy is not one of us. It's in the body. It's infecting our troops. It's infecting ourselves. we got to go and find this guy and eliminate it. 
And then, yeah, as you say, in the barracks, you've got the army begins building. So I guess the T cells and the B cells, the adaptive immune response, they're kind of the special ops, I guess you could say. Yeah. As um, in terms of what the general is, I'm always quite biased to say the cells that I specialize in are the most important, the regulatory cells. They're the general because they're the ones that call off the attack. So you need, as well as having, when we think of the immune system, we always think of like the killer cells, right? The guys that go clear the infection. But what we need to remember is what about the cells that switch off the immune system? That's my PhD. That's my specialty. Because if you don't switch off the immune system, not only do you waste energy, but then you're also likely to get autoimmune diseases because if your immune system's on, it will just go and attack anything in its path, including the organs. So that's when my cells, my babies, they're called regulatory T cells. The regulatory T cells are the generals and they'll be like, infection cleared, COVID's gone, let's switch off the immune system. Yeah, that's really interesting. And part of long COVID, I think, is the is the immune system over-responding. Yeah, isn't it? It's one of the symptoms. I mean, what? so actually one way that long COVID is, you're defined as having long COVID is if your PCR test uh, comes back positive within two to four months. So you basically keep testing positive over a two to four month range. Right. You still have, and there's some theories as to what's going on there. Like, could it be viral reservoirs? So um, this is kind of a, not scary, but I mean, it, it's the reality is that viruses can hide and COVID has viral reservoirs within us so that it can actually essentially hide in our bodies as well, kind of like the way herpes does and um, just go undetected. So that could be one theory. But the main theory as to why this is happening as well is, um, as I say, like the millennial in our sort of eras as well, you know, the 30 somethings, the 40 somethings is we just don't know when to switch off. So when we feel better, when we feel that we have no symptoms, we get up and go. Mm. But your immune system is like, no, we need to relax. We need to rest. And with that, there's some evidence showing also your immune system begins to overactivate, as you're saying. And I mean, nine times out of 10, what actually ends up killing those with COVID is actually your immune system. It's not actually COVID itself. Wow. So that's something, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's quite interesting, but that's something yeah. we're of as well. What can we do to strengthen the immune system or to minimise our risk of getting COVID and then suffering from long COVID? I think in terms of this is always a question I always get asked around, not that I remember what it's like to go out to a bar and stuff, but always the number one question I get asked when I get told, when I tell people I'm an immunologist is, oh, what can I do to improve my immune system? And unfortunately, the reality is this is not much other than, yeah, so lead a stress-free lifestyle, which, I mean, can you even do that right now? Um, Because stress negatively impacts the immune system. And it's all, unfortunately, there's no real remedies when people like sell supplements that boost your immune system I mean we always kind of roll our eyes like you know what I mean I guess it's the same as like fat loss pills it's that's honestly Mm -hmm. the way I view it um the reality is is sleep rest and stress-free lifestyle there is evidence showing that vitamin d can actually help with the immune system but that's as far as I'm aware like the only real supplement that we can take seriously and there's enough evidence showing that vitamin d Um, is beneficial for the immune system also but then at the same time there's other obvious things like like leading a healthy lifestyle as well yeah so eat healthily because there's um evidence showing that sort of healthier foods are like you know 
I mean, everyone kind of knows this generically as well. You don't need any knowledge to say, but needs to you know decrease of inflammation in the body. And actually, there's been interesting studies showing that compared to the uh, visceral adipose tissue, so in those that are obese, they've got far more killer cells and inflammatory immune system cells within that tissue compared to an athlete or someone who's more lean has got more of the regulatory cells inside those tissues. So all in all, you're trying to decrease that inflammation in your body. So basically a healthier lifestyle. Unfortunately, there's no real other thing I can say other than that. Just try and lead a stress-free life. Yeah. (laughs) I guess it comes back to some of the basics, doesn't it? You said it, eating healthily, managing your stress, um, trying to minimize stress, certainly, sleeping well. Inflammation is an interesting one because there are also some studies around inflammation and depression, um, inflammation and other serious diseases as well. So it seems as though quite a lot of it does come back to managing inflammation, which isn't always a negative thing. Obviously, you cut your finger, there's an inflammatory response that's a positive, but when it's uh, within the gut, for example, it can be problematic. So I think sort of becoming a little bit more aware of what inflammation is and how you can minimise that would be a pretty good shout. So I think it is important to focus on what we can control as well as accepting that there's probably a lot about COVID that we can't. I mean, that's the thing. Um, there's um, There was this really nice paper that came out. Oh, gosh, it was a, a few years ago now. It's either 28. I don't think it was 2019. It was definitely 2018 in Nature, which obviously like, you know, one of the best journals in the world. Um, uh, finally concluding that there is a very strong correlation between the gut microbiome and mental health illnesses. Um, And the thing is, is the immune system is, I mean, it's just so complicated, let alone me trying to explain all the different cells in the body, but your systemic immune system, which is kind of the immune system everyone thinks about, you know, your systemic, your general immune system is actually different to your mucosal immune system. You've got different cells in your gut. You've got a different immune system operating in your gut which is so interesting. And there's more and more links showing the interplay between the microbiome and the mucosal immune system. So when we think of like microbiome, we don't just mean like, you know, the guts, um, bacteria and the microflora that's in there. We also think of like, you know, the environmental factors of what you eat, which is what you can control. The things you can't control is obviously the microflora in there. Well, you can by making sure that you don't put bad bacteria in over the good bacteria, obviously. That all comes down to what you put in. You can't um, change your immune profile necessarily in there, and nor can you change your genetic factors. So 100%, it's what you actually consume that would impact overall um, your your gut, which in, in, t- in turn, by impacting your microbiome and your immune system in your gut, also impacts your mental health, which is very interesting. It is. It's fascinating. Yeah, that was a really interesting diversion. Let's get it yeah. back before we talk about vaccines. Let's just talk a bit yeah. about some of the myths that you would love to bust around COVID. I can already see from your body language you've been looking forward to this bit. <laughs> Go for it. Um, well, I think it's okay now because I think a lot of the myths that were going around around sort of when the vaccines first came out around like November, December have already kind of been debunked. I think a lot of people don't necessarily believe those as much anymore. But there was a few, I've been doing a few talks on like this app called Clubhouse and it's quite nice because anyone can kind of come and join and just, you know, ask questions. And I think the first one that really has shocked me to the core was people actually believe there's not been any any animal studies on the vaccines. 
So, sorry, I know we said we're going to vaccines set, but I think a lot of the myths are around the vaccines. So I'm going to talk about, talk about that. Yep. People, oh yeah, we immediately went into clinical trials. We immediately went into the phase one trial, which had like, I think the Oxford AstraZeneca had like 1,077 participants. And then we went straight phase one slash phase two. And then we went straight to phase three, which was about between 30 to 40,000 for all the key vaccines approved. And there's not been any animal studies. And they're like, how can you go from a Petri dish experiment straight into humans? That shocked me because it's like, no, that is not true. <laughs> there is a well, I want people to know that there is a wealth of data that was first gone into the animal studies before that data got translated into humans. Because in order to apply for clinical trials from the American FDA, the European EMA, and the UK MHRA, you need to prove that you're drug product, your vaccine, whatever it is, we're not just going to talk about vaccines, but in general, whatever it is, works not only in vitro, which is in the Petri dish. Okay, cool. It works there. Does it work in an animal model? And do you have a suitable animal model that replicates the disease model? So the problem with mice, I mean, this is getting onto controversial topics, but we can, we can talk about it as well because it's important people are aware. Um, the problem with mice is they don't actually really have much of the ACE2 receptor, which is obviously what COVID latches onto and goes you know uses that to go into whereas monkeys do rhesus macaques have been used a lot for the covid animal studies and they've obviously shown that the vaccines have been effective and safe in the animal models so from there the key groups and the biotech and pharma companies have applied to the bodies, as I mentioned before, for clinical trial applications. And then they obviously got approved and then went on to do phase one, two, three, four. Well, we're kind of in phase four right now. That's what people need to understand. It's a market authorization is phase four, which is what we're kind of going into now where you're just infusing millions of people. That's the one of the key uh, myths I wanted to bust, which was, yeah, about like there was no animal studies. There have been, the data is available, it's out there. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is herd immunity. I think this is really important that people understand this one because a lot of people have been saying these lockdowns have been so detrimental. And I mean, to be honest, lockdown, no one likes lockdown. I've, you know, it's really impacted mental health. Let's be honest. The suicide rate has soared. And there's a whole other conversation about that. I try and stay away from politics because I say, like, I'd rather, you know, you have you don't have a politician on this call. So I'm I can only speak as a scientist because I don't know what the what I only know as much as any anyone else about politically speaking, whether this these decisions made have been the right ones or yep. not. But people have been saying, uh, especially when we were yo-yoing with the whole back into tier two, back into lockdown, back into tier three, back into lockdown, why don't we just let the young people get on with it? Why don't we just shield the elderly, shield the vulnerable, and then just let all the other people that are healthy get on with it? And I think the variants have proved Herd immunity can't work. And so people need to understand that. The Brazil P1 variant has been quite a concerning one because the city where it was found, and I can't pronounce it, Man Manaus, Manaus, I can't pronounce it properly. Sorry, but, <laughs> but a majority of that population in that city had antibodies towards an original COVID strain and they got reinfected. And so severe, a lot of the cases were hospitalized. That was because of the variant. So and then we also have the main variant of concern is the South African variant. Pfizer and AstraZeneca are not that effective in stopping the uh, South African variant. I think, I mean, this is reality. We need to talk about it. The Pfizer vaccine is 14 times 
less effective against the South African variant compared to our UK variant. And AstraZeneca is only 10.4% effective against the South African variant. Now, obviously, I guess lucky for us, it's not here. <laughs> um, but I think what I wanted to just really, I hope this hits home to people when they say, well, let's just all just get on with it. No, you know, because if you let us continue roaming, the more the virus has to jump from host to host, the more it can learn how to outwit our defense mechanisms and immune system, and the more it can mutate. That's the second thing. And I think the final myth I wanted to talk about was the pregnancy. Um, a lot of, there's been a crazy, uh, to be honest, I think it was written by an anti-vaxxer. Um, there's a crazy like sort of paper, not even paper, just a blog post that came out showing that how, because the COVID spike protein resembles a, a protein that's in our placenta, in the female placenta, by generating antibodies towards the COVID spike protein, your antibodies can then make a mistake. And then actually, because it looks so similar to your placenta proteins, can go and kill your placenta and effectively make you infertile or make you miscarry. That is a complete fabrication because I've had so many people ask me, should I get the vaccine if I want to get pregnant one day or I am pregnant? It's a complete fabrication. These two proteins are nothing alike. They have only about four amino acids in common. Um, and I've made jokes on my, my Instagram that I've, I share more than four amino acids in common with Margot Robbie. I don't look anything like her realistically, you know? So, <laughs> so I, like, who do I look like the most um, opposite from? I'm sorry, my throat. Yeah, no worries. So, um, yeah, I just think that was the key thing that I wanted to bring across is they don't look the same and you shouldn't have to worry if you want to get pregnant one day. Like there's no indication whatsoever. Yeah. And you've just had the vaccine, haven't you? Yeah, I had AstraZeneca. Yeah. Yeah. As I did about five weeks ago from time yeah. of recording. So obviously there's been a lot of uh, press coverage about still to this day about AstraZeneca as well. Have you got any opinion on that? I mean, obviously you've had the vaccine. That's the most resounding stamp of approval from your part but oh boy um <laughs> okay AstraZeneca have been a little bit naughty as well um and this was in the news a few weeks ago I'm not sure how much people know about it and I I debated putting this I put like a story about it but I debated actually making a post about it because I just didn't want to damage I didn't want people to have another excuse to be like oh this is why we don't trust scientists and vaccines mm. and all that but AstraZeneca gave a cheeky white lie as to how effective their vaccine was. So they published showing that their vaccine is 79% effective. And I guess as a scientist, okay, I almost get it because when you have like your main competitors, Pfizer and Moderna coming out with 92%, 94%, and yours is like 79%, you're like, okay. And But what people need to understand is press releases like to glamorize the data. So there's this joke among scientists that when the press release comes out, the public gets so excited, but scientists kind of roll their eyes like, I'm waiting for the publication to come out. And then the abstract comes out and the abstract is still quite, oh yeah, we have shown X, Y, and Z, and this is novel. And it's like, let me actually see the publication for myself. And you see, actually, they've kind of blown up their findings, which is normal because you want to make it sound sexier than it actually is, essentially. Yeah. And the devil's in the detail, isn't it? With right. all these studies, the efficacy of the study, the robustness of the trials, etc. Exactly. Whereas, yeah. so what AstraZeneca said was their vaccine is seventy nine percent effective. However, the Data Safety and Monitoring Board, which is an independent group of experts who review the clinical trial studies, they actually advised AstraZeneca that their vaccine was sixty four to sixty nine percent effective, 
or up to maximum 74% effective, not 79. But what AstraZeneca did was they took data from an interim study showing that it was 79%. They just went with that. And there's pros and cons. Like it's very, it can not necessarily be a white lie. I want to be careful when I say that because it could have been like an honest finding. Mm. Um, They did state this was results from an interim study. So they were completely transparent about that. But that was one thing that also tarnished their reputation a little bit. Um, The other thing which obviously has been in the news is about the blood clots. Um, Obviously, yesterday, I think the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, which is the main European regulatory body, have concluded that there is a link. So the UK are now saying that everyone under the age of 30 should get the mRNA technology, so Pfizer or Moderna. Okay, there have been 79 cases of some sort of thrombosis, blood clots, out of 20 million. I mean, that's 0.0004%. I mean, I think the stats show that you're far more likely to get eaten by a shark in your own bathtub than get a blood clot from the vaccine. I'm. We've all been talking in the past 24 hours, immunologists, about this. And we're wondering whether AstraZeneca is being used as a bit of a scapegoat. We're wondering if this is, I don't know, as I say, I can't talk about political, you know, if there's a, some sort of anger with Britain and all that stuff, potentially. Like, I can't talk about that. But I'm wondering, personally, I'm wondering if others who are listening maybe agree, whether AstraZeneca is being used as a scapegoat from a pharmacovigilance standpoint to prove this is how seriously we're taking safety of the vaccine, something that's 0.0004% likely to cause some sort of morbidity. Well, we're just going to, you know, put that uh, on the state on the on the yellow card scheme and on the leaflets and make sure that everyone under the age of 30 doesn't get this vaccine it's like but hang on a second the oral contraceptive pill you're 50 times more likely to develop a blood clot from that over the astrazeneca vaccine but then that's not been banned so i'm wondering if this is a way to try and boost trust from the public oh yeah like our safety boards are taking this very very seriously so i'm wondering if it's an element of that to be honest but as i say I should be due my second dose in like 10 weeks time. I'm going to happily go get my second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So. <laughs> well, there we go. Straight from the mouth of an immunologist. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, that's been fascinating. I hope that's given people a little bit more information on COVID facts, COVID myths, more about the vaccine with the ultimate rubber stamp and that you've had it and you'll definitely be getting that second dose. Um, Dr. Yas, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to find out more about what we do for companies, head over to our website, bodyshopperformance.com. You'll also have the opportunity while you're there to take our Health IQ quiz. If you'd like to find out more about how you sleep, your mental health, your energy, your body composition, digestive health, and your overall fitness for the rigors of life, take our short Health IQ quiz and get a highly personalized report at the end. That's over there at the website, bodyshopperformance.com.